When you hear the words, now the Spirit expressly says, what does that suggest to you immediately? Those are Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, the text at which we will look tonight through verse 10, and we have to cover quite a few verses to finish up here in good fashion by the 24th of April, we're trying to get through 1 Timothy, but we won't be able to spend a lot of time with each of these verses, but there are some salient points that we do want to emphasize, and a verse or so in particular that we want to spend uh, perhaps the major part of our time tonight. But when we begin with chapter 4, verse 1, and the words as the New King James renders it, now the Spirit expressly says, what does that suggest about the Spirit? It's a capital S, and it should be, because we're talking about the Holy Spirit. But when we see the words, now the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit expressly says, what does that say to us about the nature of the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit can speak, if the Holy Spirit can communicate, and in fact the Holy Spirit does communicate, then the Holy Spirit cannot be, as some erroneously contend, some mysterious force or substance. But if the Spirit speaks, then the Spirit, as we should know from our examination of Scripture, is a personality in the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is a part of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Spirit as the member, one of the members, one of the three members of the Godhead, is the great revelator. He is the one who has expressed the will of God through inspired men initially who recorded it for us upon the pages of the Old and the New Testament, for that matter. And so, in the Old Testament, we can read in Second Samuel 23, verse 2, the Spirit spoke by me. Those are the words of David. As he said, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit spoke by me. Now here Paul, in New Testament times, says the Spirit expressly says. And that word says is in the present tense which indicates that at the time Paul penned these words, the Holy Spirit was continuing to communicate to inspired men. These are not simply the opinions of the Apostle Paul. These are the inspired words of Paul expressed through him by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so when we see those words, now the Spirit expressly says, it is a reminder and should be a reminder to those who have contended otherwise that the Spirit is far more than some sort of mysterious substance or force, but the Spirit is a member of the Godhead. Well, what does the Spirit here say? The Spirit here says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. That's verse 1 of our text. Where or when are the latter times? Now. We are in those latter times. We are in the last days. I do not mean by that that uh, the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ is imminent. That is, that it's going to happen a few days from now or a few years from now. We don't know that. But regardless of that information, which we do not have, we are still nonetheless in the last days as the scripture from Pentecost forward refers to this particular time period in which we find ourselves tonight. And that is... The last period of time. The last days are equivalent to the Christian dispensation, which is the final dispensation. 
We had the patriarchal, we had the Mosaic dispensation when the law of Moses was in effect, and with Pentecost and the announcement of the terms of admission into the kingdom of heaven, the church of Christ, the gospel was preached for the first time, and the last days or the latter days had their beginning. And so we are in that final dispensation. So it is in this dispensation of time that the Spirit inspired Paul to say, or to write here as the case is, that some are going to depart from the faith. And so there's a prophetic element to this statement here in verse 1. There is a prophetic element which reminds us of the fact that the Spirit inspiring these men to write these things, it should not surprise us that there can be a prophetic element and that there is a prophetic element that we see from Old Testament to New. Prophets, prophets were not peculiar to the Old Testament. There are New Testament prophets as well. Agabus was one, for example. And so there are prophetic statements that we find in the New Testament, and here is one of them. And that is that in these latter times, in the last days, the final dispensation, everyone will depart from the faith? No. He does not say that there will be a total apostasy. He just says that some will depart from the faith. Well, while that may be initially somewhat discouraging, and it is to know that there are those who will depart from the faith. And we've lived long enough, most of us, to know that we have personal information, uh, personal awareness of some who have departed from the faith, even in our day and time. And that's a tragedy beyond description. But not everyone will depart from the faith, Paul predicts by inspiration. There will always be that remnant whether we can always identify that remnant or not, there will be that remnant. And the kingdom will always stand. It will always be there in seed form, if in no other form, won't it? Because Daniel prophesied that in the days of the Roman kings, Daniel 2.44, the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that will what? Never be destroyed. Never be destroyed. And so while some will and some have departed from the faith, we can take comfort and solace in the fact that there will be those who will always be faithful unto death and have been faithful unto death. But some will depart from what? The faith. The faith. And how many times have we pointed out that the faith as it is used is equivalent to Christianity itself, the gospel, the doctrine of the New Testament. The faith, not depart from faith, although they will lose their faith, obviously, but the departure is from the faith. The faith that Jude and Jude 3 wrote to the brethren to contend earnestly for the faith, once for all time delivered to the saints there. And so the faith is the Christian system, Christianity itself. Some are going to turn their backs, in other words, Paul says, on Christianity. They will do so by giving heed, he says, to deceiving Spirits. Now, when we see the phrase deceiving spirits, do we think that this is some sort of uh, uh, phenomenon out here that uh, is a spirit who is uh, influencing someone from the uh, supernatural realm? No, though certainly we know that Satan is such a being and that he has those uh, in the spiritual realm who are doing his bidding. But deceiving spirits here indicates people. These are individuals. These are teachers. They are false teachers and false preachers. You remember in 1 John 4 and verse 1, John wrote, Brethren, do not believe every spirit, but try or test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because, he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he, he, uh, he says the 
false prophets are these spirits. He's talking about people, teachers. And so deceiving spirits are individual teachers here. They are people, flesh and bone people, but whose spirits, uh, that is, whose teaching is contrary to the will of God. And the doctrines of demons is not a phrase that indicates that demons are those responsible for this teaching. But the doctrines of demons is more properly rendered the doctrines relative to demons. And the demons being departed spirits. And there were those in New Testament times who had the idea that these demons or these departed spirits were worthy of being worshipped. In the pagan world, there were those who worshipped who worshipped departed spirits. Is there anything like that going on today? Anything like that going on in the religious world today? Indeed, there is. And the idea of sainthood and dubbing someone a saint has been the long-standing practice of the most dominant religious denomination in existence, as have other characteristics that are about to be described by the Apostle Paul in prophetic fashion, predicting the time when forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods, all of that is familiar to us as well. And so prophetically, Paul is giving us a preview of what has now become a stark reality in the world in which we live tonight. Another proof of the inspiration of Scripture. But he says in verse 2 that they will be speaking lies in hypocrisy. Think about that. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. It's one thing to to teach error and to practice error uh, unknowingly and to not realize that what you are doing is erroneous. But the indication here of verse 2 is that these are people who know exactly what they are doing. They are hypocrites. And they are speaking lies that they know to be lies. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. How can someone do that? How can someone in good conscience do that? Well, that's the point. In good conscience, you can't do that. But what does he say about the consciences of these individuals who speak lies in hypocrisy? They have what? Having their own conscience, what? Seared with a hot iron. That word seared is the word from which we get our word cauterized. When you cauterize something, what happens to the feeling when it's been cauterized? It's gone, isn't it? And that's exactly what he's saying. It's very similar to what he wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 1 and verse 15. Look at that statement. To the pure, he writes to Titus, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. That's the equivalent statement to the one we've read here. Their mind and conscience are defiled. They're seared as with a hot iron. They have been cauterized. Can a person fight against his conscience to the point that ultimately he will lose his sensitivity and his conscience can become seared and actually approve of the very thing it should disapprove of? Indeed, it can happen. Has happened, does happen. And Paul says that's exactly what is happening already in progress and will progress and become more extreme as time goes on. There were the Essenes of Paul's time who were ascetics and believed that material things were uh, in and of themselves evil, and so they pulled away from the material. 
There were the Gnostics who uh, had similar claims, but obviously in our day and time, we see it, as we said, in the most dominant religious denomination in existence. And that brings us to verse 3, which reminds us of that dominant religious teaching in that denominational body today, forbidding to marry, sound familiar, commanding to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Incidentally, as he says these things, it's a stark reminder that not only must we believe the truth, but we can know the truth, can't we? He says you can distinguish between false doctrine, the doctrines of men, and what is truly from God. You can know whether or not you can eat certain things or drink certain things. You can know these things based upon the fact that God has revealed these things to you in his word. And you can believe those things and you can know those things. For those who believe and know the truth, you cannot or should not be led astray by the false doctrines and the elaborate traditions and the teachings of men that so permeate our religious world tonight. Remember in John 8, 32, Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth is knowable. The truth is believable. The truth is absolute. It is not fluid. It is not something that changes with the culture or that changes with the times. It is once for all established. The faith is. And then he goes on in verse 4 to elaborate further on this point. He says, for every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. Verse 5, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. In other words, partaking of these foods that some, based upon their erroneous religious practice, have forbidden, all of that is set forth in the word of God, set apart or sanctified. That's the meaning of sanctified. You can know it by what the word of God sets apart and says. Now, granted, there were certain uh, dietary laws under the law of Moses that were very strict. And you go back to Leviticus chapter 11, for example, and you can see those clean and unclean animals and those things that they could eat, those things that they could not eat. But all that has changed. We're not under the old law any longer. Those dietary rules are no longer applicable to us. And you remember uh, that um, Peter, when he saw that vision and was convinced that he ought to go to the household of Cornelius and preach the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time, when that sheet was let down with all these uh, animals, and he said, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's uh, unclean. And uh, he said, what God has cleansed It's not unclean. It was letting him know by that vision using certain things that had been prior to that time forbidden to the Jews. All that is gone. All that is gone. And so there are no dietary prohibitions. Obviously, there are certain things that we don't take into our bodies. We don't drink alcohol. He's not saying that everything that you could possibly... Uh, put into your body is something that God has approved of. How do we know what God approves of? It's sanctified or set apart by the Word of God. I can know I shouldn't drink alcohol because the Word of God tells me that. I can know by the Word of God, and then prayer is involved here, which gets us back to the importance of being thankful to God 
Not being like the pig that eats the acorns and never looks up to see the tree from whence they have fallen. But we are thankful for everything that God supplies to us and we recognize the source of that blessing. Now, he says, verse 6, Timothy, if you will instruct the brethren in these things, the things that he has just mentioned, you will be a good minister. And that word minister is the word from which we get our word deacon or servant. It's just you'll be a good servant. You'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ, nourished in the word of faith. Isn't that a great phrase, by the way? How many people, even in the church today, are malnourished? How many people are suffering from malnutrition? Malnutrition, spiritual malnutrition, because they do not feed as they should, as regularly and as deeply upon the Word of God. That phrase, nourished by the Word of faith, tells us that the most important kind of nourishment that we could ever have comes from the written Word. Nourished by the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. You know, there are those, and we've mentioned this before, who tell us we don't have any specific pattern of doctrine. Under the new covenant, uh, grace rules the day, and truth is whatever you make it to be or whatever you want it to be as long as you're sincere. Passage after passage after passage make it abundantly clear that there was and is a specific doctrine that is the New Testament. Hold the pattern of sound words, 2 Timothy 1.13, which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. What does he say? Hold the pattern, the form, the mold is the idea of sound words. There is a specific doctrine. There is a specific system of faith. There is a good doctrine. There is a bad doctrine. And the good doctrine, he says, Timothy, you have carefully followed. If there's no specific Doctrine, how in the world do you know you're following it? And so there had to be a specific doctrine. There is a specific doctrine. It is the New Testament itself. By way of contrast, though, in verse 7 he says, but reject profane and old wives' fables. Some of these things that these false teachers, no doubt at Ephesus, were injecting into their teaching and basing their teaching upon. Remember, Timothy was at Ephesus. There were some there who were teaching what they should not have been teaching. And Paul's instructing Timothy to stand against that. Reject profane and old wives' fables. And do what, rather? Exercise yourself toward godliness. That word exercise is the word from which we get our word gymnastics. It's the idea of exercising. Paul loved to use athletic analogies and references in his uh, writings as he wrote about running the race and fighting the good fight and all of those uh, images that he used from uh, athletic competition. Here he says, exercise yourself toward godliness. Exercise yourself what? Toward godliness. In other words, as you exercise yourself spiritually, you are going to become more and more godlike. That's the growth process that the child of God, that every child of God should be involved in. As we have said so often, the maturation of the Christian does not take place by a mere passage of time. 
You don't become stronger as a Christian just because you've been a Christian 20 years or 30 years. All of us become stronger as Christians because we what? Apply ourselves to the teaching of the Word of God. Because we exercise ourselves toward godliness. If you're getting ready from the physical standpoint to try to uh, run a race or to walk a race even for that matter, uh, as the Leslies did recently in a 5K uh, here for colon cancer benefits, I believe, and that's a good cause. But when you're getting ready for that, as Brenda told me, you don't just get up the day of the walk or the run or whatever you're going to do and say, I believe I'll do this. I haven't done anything like this in years, but I'll be just going to get up and do this this morning. That's not a good thing to do. And that's not what they did. They went out and they walked and they walked and they increased stamina and they got to the point where it was not a big problem. That's what physical exercise does, a training process. We all know that. Athletes have to go through it. Well... When we exercise ourselves toward godliness, it is not something that takes place, that growth doesn't over the passage of time. We have to apply ourselves to it. We have to apply ourselves to it. And then he makes the contrast in verse 8. For godly, or for bodily exercise rather, profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Oh, that's a great verse. We need to consider a very important aspect of this verse. Godliness has the promise of the what? Of the life that now is and of that which is to come. That's a reminder that there are blessings now in Christianity. Not just the blessings that come after this life is over. We can't describe heaven. There's no way for us to possibly describe heaven. It's, a, it's an impossible task for the finite mind to be able to describe heaven. We don't have the descriptive details. Even, even in, in scriptural references to heaven, many of them are negative. We've pointed out, uh, this out before. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. Those are three negative descriptive details. That's the best words can do. Even words by inspiration to give us a glimpse of heaven because it's impossible for the finite mind to fully comprehend it, though we need to spend a lot of time trying and we need to think about it a lot, obviously. And we need to work toward going there and getting there. But many of these are negative descriptions even. 2 Corinthians 12 speaks of Paul being taken up to the third heaven. And he was not able to tell what he saw. But what if he had been able to announce a lecture tour? What if he had been able to announce, I'm going on a lecture tour. And in every city in which I come, I'm going to describe my trip to heaven. Do you think anybody showed up for that? Why, the mobs would have clamored to know as much as they possibly could about his trip. And many times we overlook the present while we look at the future reward. But think for a moment here about the present blessings of Christianity. Time doesn't allow us to spend a great deal of uh, time and detail for them, but think briefly about, first of all, God's providential care. That's one of the great Blessings that we enjoy now 
as Christians. Matthew 6, 25 through 34, in the great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus enumerated those blessings that are provided by God. We don't have to be overly concerned. We don't, we should not be, must not be overly concerned about what we're going to eat, drink, or wear, etc. Do we believe the Lord when he spoke these words in Matthew 6, when he says, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, or about your clothing, etc.? Trouble is, many times we lose sight of verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Many times people get too caught up in being worried about money and jobs and material gain and social standing. But for Christians, our responsibility is to put first things first. Remember Philippians 4, 6 and 7, In nothing be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What a passage that is. The peace that God bestows. That's the peace of God. The peace that God bestows. And that will guard your hearts and minds. And that word guard sounds like a military term. And it is a military connotation. Because that peace of God guards against the anxiety of everyday living. It is wrong for Christians to be torn by worry. Because worry shows a distrust of God. It's like the preacher that was always worried about being late or missing a preaching appointment. And when he left his home and had to go virtually anywhere, he had to catch a ferry boat. He had to catch a ferry in order to make his uh, appointments. And his whole family had to work to get him off on time. And in one case, he came down to the river, and as he approached the river, he realized the ferry boat was already three feet away from the dock. And he took off running as fast as he could, made a jump, and just barely hung on to the boat, almost fell back. People pulled him on and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm trying to keep from missing the ferry boat. And they said, well, that's all well and good, but we're coming into the dock. We're not going out. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes we can get overly concerned about the things in this life. So we must have faith. We must have faith in God's providential care of us. And that ought to lead us to the great blessing of Christianity that is peace of mind. Not only the providence of God and the blessing now of that providence, but also the peace of mind. You know, if we don't have peace of mind as Christians, we better examine our spirituality, reappraise our goals, reappraise our ambitions, our priorities, our love for the Lord. Because if we don't have that peace of mind, that peace that surpasses understanding, then we've stripped faith of one of its primary meanings. And that is a confidence, an assurance, not just mental agreement, but a trust, a confidence, an assurance. And that will bring us peace as Christians. And it's that kind of trust that will couple with our obedience, enable us to go forward in the Lord's work wherever we are. We've got to have that kind of faith. There was a wire walker who put up his wire and as the story goes a crowd gathered below to watch him see if he could walk that wire and he looked down and he said how many of you believe I can walk this wire going forward and 
Everybody in the crowd raised their hand. They all raised their hand. So he did it. Then he said, all right, now how many of you think I can walk this wire backwards? And everybody again. Hands went up from every person in the crowd. And so he did it. He did it. And then he got a wheelbarrow. And he said, how many of you think of you think I can walk it pushing this wheelbarrow? And again, all the hands went up. And then he said, who will volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> Nobody's hands went up. <laughs> we have got to not only believe in the Lord and his wheelbarrow, so to speak, we've got to be willing to get in it. We've got to be willing to get in it. The Lord commended people for their faith. Oh, time doesn't permit us to talk in detail about the centurion of whom we read in Matthew 8, verses 5 through 10, or the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15. Now, you think about those two examples. Neither of these people was a Jew. They would have been outcast in the eyes of organized religion. And yet, notice some characteristics of each one of them. Each one of them respected Christ's authority. Do we? They believed in his power. Do we? They let him set the conditions in which to administer that power. Are we always willing to let the Lord set the conditions of our salvation, obey his plan, obey his commandments? If you love me, John 14, 15, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. And so one of the great blessings of Christianity now, the life that now is, is the peace of mind as well as the providence of God. But then there is also the joy of being united with Christians in the body of Christ. And how precious is that unity and how important is the preservation of that unity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity Psalm 133, verse 1. There's so many passages in the Bible, so many that show the blessedness of unity in the Lord's church. Ephesians 4, 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Acts 2, 42, and they, the early Christians, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And it goes on to talk about how they were all together as one. Whatever one had, the other could have if needs arose. And they readily and willingly sold what they had as needs arose to help one another. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called, one hope of your calling. That one body, Ephesians 4.4, 4, is the church. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How precious is the unity in that body. Some have tried to destroy the unity of believers by binding laws that God did not bind. Negative attitudes have hurt and divided the body of Christ, and that's sinful. Christians ought to enjoy fellowship with one another. And dwell together in unity and should never drive wedges over matters of opinion. And where disunity exists, it shows a wrong attitude toward Christianity. 
itself. But you know, there's one other blessing of the life that now is, and that's giving. Giving is a blessing of Christianity. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4, Paul called it a grace. A grace. It is a favor God has bestowed upon us to allow us to give. It's a privilege and a blessing. And giving of our time will be a blessing also to ourselves and to others. And so is it any wonder Paul says this then, verse 9, after he talks about bodily exercise, profiting a little, meaning a little time is the idea, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Is it any wonder then that he says this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance? And finally he says, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach. Some translations render it, we both labor and strive. And the word labor indicates we work to exhaustion. We work to exhaustion. And the word strive, in some translations, means to agonize. That's the kind of activity that God expects of us for as long as we're on this earth. Laboring till we're exhausted and agonizing because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. What does it mean he's the Savior of all men? Well, it means he's simply available as the Savior to all men. But when he adds the phrase, especially to those who believe, he is saying he will only become the Savior to those who respond to his will. Have you done that tonight? What is that response that is required? Belief in Jesus as the Christ and then repentance of sin, confession of his sweet name, and burial with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And if you're willing to comply with those conditions, then he will add you to his kingdom, the church, as you rise from the watery grave of baptism in newness of life. If you need to come home to your first love as a wayward child, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing to encourage you. Will you come?